Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Israel-Palestine, Argentina, the United Kingdom, the United States, and a sea when hell that's the celebration of the death of a fascist or a right-wing supporter from fascist Italy. Starting out this week with Israel-Palestine, the war between Israel and Hamas has complicated things for the extreme right wing. Uh, This is a podcast about right wing politics. If you are interested in the details of the conflict currently happening in Israel-Palestine, I highly suggest that you seek out a more qualified expert. The reason that I'm bringing this up in this podcast is that this conflict has exacerbated problems, internal problems, within right wing coalitions, not just in the United States, but everywhere. Specifically, it exposes the internal conflict between the fascistic, anti-Semitic part of the extreme right wing and the more Christian nationalist-oriented direction of the right wing. The fascistic part of the right wing is, of course, excited about an attack on Israel because they are anti-Semitic evil people who want Jewish people to be killed. They have even sometimes couched this position as faux support for Palestinian liberation and have even appeared at pro-Palestinian rights rallies, not just in the United States, but around the world. This, of course, is a false flag on their part, right? They, they are not in support of Palestinian rights per se. They're just expressing their anti-Semitism, which is muddying the perspective of people who are trying to talk about Palestinian rights and justice for Palestinian people in this context. Simultaneously, the Christian nationalist part of the extreme right wing is using the plight of Jewish people in order to advance their interest. Again, a false flag pretending to be caring about the anti-Semitic attacks and the difficulties and dangers and massacres of Jewish people perpetrated by Hamas in Israel, pretending that this is part of their big divine plan, right? Their, Their big divine plan about conflict centered in what they consider to be the holy land of Christianity, Israel. This is a similar problem, not just in the United States, but in the rest of the world. For example, we're seeing similar conflict erupting internally within the far right in France. Now, I'm bringing your attention to this conflict for a couple of reasons. One, so that you are aware that people are co-opting these ideologies and rhetorics for their own purposes. And two, to illustrate the differences in the conflicts within the extreme right wing, right? It is not a monolith. They have differences of opinion about these kinds of things. Moving on to Argentina. In Argentina, we've seen a reconciliation between Javier Millet, the extreme right-wing slash hyper-libertarian candidate, and the Mauricio Macri-Patricio Bullrich campaign, uh, which has the emblem of neoliberalism in Argentina. In fact, the Bullrich campaign has officially endorsed Millet, and it says that they want their supporters to vote for him in the upcoming runoff scheduled for November 19th. This despite the fact that Patricio Bullrich has previously sued Javier Millet for defamation. Massa, the current frontrunner and Peronist candidate, is, like I said, still ahead in the polls, but things remain uncertain with many voters undecided and many people saying that they're not going to be voting at all. Like I said, this runoff is coming in a couple weeks with a lot of stuff scheduled to happen in the meantime. Moving on to the United Kingdom, just a quick little tidbit Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and famed sort of party boy, famed for his like boy king type energy and his must up hair, is now joining a British conservative news network 
called GB News, Great Britain News, and he is going to be a news commentator for their company. Finally, moving on to the United States, where I'm going to be spending the majority of this episode, just a lot of right-wing crap happened in the United States this week. On the day that I released the previous episode, or rather on the day that I recorded the previous episode, there was a mass shooting in the United States in Lewiston, Maine. The killer was, like many perpetrators of mass shootings in the United States, a disaffected young man, in this case a white man. Acutely, it seems like he was upset over his girlfriend leaving him, and this of course is not a an excuse for the violence that he committed, but it is often the rationale given not just by the shooters themselves, but also by the news media, right? They're saying that like, well, this is the cause of his having committed these attacks. Of course, observers and commentators like myself would argue that that is not the case. The cause of these attacks is acute mental health crises, rampant, violent masculinity, and also the extreme availability of assault rifles and extremely dangerous weapons in the United States. We also know from people who have done dives into his accounts before they were deleted that he is known to have followed and shared and been excited about a lot of right-wing accounts and right-wing content. Again, that is no surprise. As of yet, there is no reason to believe that he was motivated by a particular right-wing ideology or that he considered himself to be a member of a right-wing political movement as such. However, if you are aware of those connections that I haven't found in my research, please correct me if I'm wrong and I'll correct myself in the upcoming episode. Uh, go to 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com and give me a correction. Moving on to news about Donald Trump. There's more news about Donald Trump. Every week, here's our weekly news about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is now facing a bunch of trials. We know this. He is facing trial in Georgia. He's facing trial in New York, and he might potentially be facing trial on a federal level, but that's questionable. Currently, we know that he is under a fraud case in New York, right? We've talked about this several times before. The news here is that a bunch of new people are going to be forced to take the stand against him. These include his children, Ivanka Trump and his sons. This plan, the, the fact that they're going to be facing the judge, right? The fact that they're going to be put up on the stand to testify in this case is going to put them in a difficult position, right? Deciding their loyalties in real time between their father and their family and their own standing vis-a-vis -vis the law. Now, these people, a lot of them, you know, all of Trump's children are deeply involved, not just in his business dealings, but also in his political dealings. This means that they are going to have to decide if they are going to side with him or side with their own skin, right? That is exactly what the prosecutors are looking to do by putting them up on the stand, and we're just going to have to see exactly what happens. In the case of other Trump legal woes, three of his major allies, Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, and the MyPillow CEO, Mike Lindell, are all in serious legal trouble. These people are all implicated in basically all of Trump's other crimes, especially the ones in Georgia related to election fraud. And unlike Trump, they are not billionaires, or at least not billionaires on paper. We know that there's questions about how much money Trump actually has available to him. These people are facing millions of dollars in legal fees related to these cases, related to their ignoring of congressional subpoenas. They're facing a lot of jail time in some, in some cases, like Bannon is facing four months in jail for refusing a congressional subpoena. And he doesn't have billions of dollars of legal fees to, you know, lean on, right? He doesn't have billions of dollars to pay those fees with. They got to go, in some cases, literally to online fundraising platforms. 
in order to raise the money to mount their own legal defenses. Moving on to electoral news specifically about the 2024 election, the state of Colorado. In the state of Colorado, there is a case currently going up on the docket arguing that Donald Trump should be ineligible to appear on the state ballot of Colorado based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the United States. Now, the 14th Amendment is one of the post-Civil War amendments, a trio of amendments, the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery with the exception of incarcerated people, the 14th Amendment, which has multiple sections and is one of the more convoluted parts of the United States Constitution, and the 15th Amendment, which guarantees voting rights. Now, the 14th Amendment, in its one of its sections, in Section 3, says that anybody who has sworn an oath to defend the Constitution as part of their having been an elected official in the United States, on the federal level or to any state, anybody who has sworn an oath in that regard, an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States, is ineligible to run for elected office in the United States if they have waged rebellion or insurrection against the United States. This is one of the reasons that Congress and prosecutors in the United States federal government use the word insurrection to refer to Donald Trump's attempted coup. It's because that's the word that appears legally in the Constitution. So if Trump committed an insurrection, these people in Colorado argue, he is ineligible to appear on a ballot for any elected office in the United States forever. If they win this case, Donald Trump's candidacy is basically done, as many copycat cases are appearing already in other states. For example, in Michigan, where Donald Trump has already filed a lawsuit against their legal claims, saying that he is ineligible to run in that state. Continuing on in the 2024 electoral news, in the GOP primary, we have a couple tidbits of information. The first is that Donald Trump is still far and away the frontrunner for the GOP nomination for the 2024 presidential election. The second is that Donald Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, has stepped down, having gained essentially zero traction in his attempt to dethrone Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee. The third is that Ron DeSantis has not stepped down, but has potentially been stepping up into lifted boots. You've probably seen a lot of the memes about this online, you know, evaluating Ron DeSantis's gait and saying like, oh, it, it appears as if he has lifts in the heels of his cowboy boots to increase his height. Ron DeSantis on paper is 5'8", which is how tall I am, you know, no shame in being short-ish, you know. But the idea that he's using lifted boots and is denying this, which, which he did on a recent television program, is a little bit degrading and is probably going to sink his chances. On a much more serious note in the United States, Mitt Romney, former Republican nominee for president in the Obama re-election campaign, has said in a biography that he believes that most of the Republicans who voted against impeaching Trump did so not because they didn't believe that Trump was guilty, but because they were afraid. This is a leading light in the Republican Party, at least the pre-Trump Republican Party, and somebody who did come out against Donald Trump, who did vote to impeach Donald Trump, somebody who says that the GOP is splintered not just because of politics, but because the moderate wing of the party is afraid of the extremist wing of the party. He's saying that Republican congresspersons fear their own constituents. They're afraid for their lives, they're afraid for their property, and they're afraid for the lives and property of their families. They're afraid that their constituents, who are rabid Donald Trump supporters, are going to come and kill them or attack them 
if they go against Donald Trump. Now that is fucking terrifying to not just me, but to the entirety of the United States and the world. This means that one of the people closest to how the Republican Party actually does in fact work inside is saying openly, yes, I believe that the party is dominated by fear and specifically by fear of political partisan violence on the part of the extreme right, not just externally, but internally too. Woof. Uh, happy Halloween. Jesus. Terrifying news. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of right-wing figures in history. This one is another complicated one. Her name is Margareta Safaretti, uh, and she is a wealthy Italian elite, art critic, collector, biographer, fascist, Mussolini's mistress, and she is also Jewish. Sofrati was born in Venice in 1880 to an extremely wealthy family. Her father was a Jewish lawyer and business person deeply involved in the Venetian commercial world and also in the elite world of Italian politics. He was a close friend of a cardinal who was eventually become Pope Pius X, who was a relatively conservative pre-World War I Catholic pope. Sofrati became a sort of bohemian socialist dilettante, uh, in Milan with her first husband when she gained her last name, Sofrati, where she eventually met several of the leading socialists and art people in Italy at the time. At the time, some of these leading socialists included Benito Mussolini, who she met in 1911. Now, this is before World War I. This is before fascism, when Benito Mussolini is, at worst, a particularly avant-garde and violent socialist. During this time in the pre-war era, she was working at an art critic to Avanti, the Italian Socialist Party's newspaper, of which Mussolini was one of the directors, so like an editor-in-chief type figure. After World War I, her husband and one of her sons died. This transformed her social life. She eventually got closer to Mussolini and became one of his lovers. She wrote and published a biography about him shortly after the March on Rome, so in 1924, published in 1925. This biography was published internationally as The Life of Benito Mussolini, at this time, Mussolini was an extremely popular and not particularly controversial figure. Fascism was extremely popular internationally at this point. And recall, this is before the rise of Nazism in Germany. At this point, the Nazi party is a small fascist party and does not seem like it's poised to take over the world or to threaten the international system. At this point, Mussolini is the leader of a sort of revived Italy, and people really like fascism. There's fascist fever all over the world, and the life of Benito Mussolini, this biography published by Sarfati, is one of the reasons for the spread of this fascist mythologizing. As a, again, at this point, Italian fascism did not care about Judaism at all, at least openly, and so Sarfati was a major part of Benito Mussolini's inner circle, providing some policy and political perspective to him by virtue of being both a friend and a lover. She did this while remaining one of the leading people in the Italian art collection and art critical world. She lived this life from Mussolini's takeover of power in Italy in 1922 up until 1938, when Mussolini bowed to pressure from Nazi Germany and issued a new racial code in Italy, barring the participation of Jewish people in the Italian fascist party and also severely curtailing their power and privileges and just like rights to be everyday regular people in Italy. 
She saw the writing on the wall despite her deep personal connections with Benito Mussolini and fled the country, first to Paris, then finally to Montevideo, Uruguay, and Buenos Aires, Argentina, where she lived until 1947, again as an art critic, art collector, and journalist, palling around with the leading art figures in that world, including Jorge Luis Borges, the famous Argentine author and sort of public intellectual type. While in Argentina and Uruguay, she wrote another Mussolini biography called Mussolini as I Knew Him, sort of a like a, a, an attempt to get back at this man whom she used to know. After the war in 1948, she returned to Italy, where she was once again a leading figure in the art world, uh, although slightly tarnished by her association with fascism. She died of natural causes in her country home in a rural town near Lake Cuomo, this week in history, the 30th of October, 1961. So, Margareta Sarfati, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. I would again encourage you to ignore my Patreon and the Patreon of any other content creator that you might encounter and to instead donate to Medicine Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross, and the Red Crescent. If you would like to get in touch with me, check out my Gmail at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, Fascism 15. And I'm also on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. That's 15 Men's of Fash. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.